0: It is not exactly WikiLeaks. But the information from the files of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, hearings in 1963 and delivered to the National Archives in Washington, offer a treasure trove of previously withheld documents that opens a window on something, some interesting things that were going on in Washington 50 years ago that are painfully relevant today. One of the people who's been going through those boxes of files has been Grant Smith of IRMEP, the Institute for Research Middle East Policy in Washington, who I have had as guest three times before in this program discussing previously released documents that trace the beginnings of what is commonly referred to as the Israel or pro-Israel lobby, but which is more like a multi-story hotel with hundreds of interconnecting rooms and a labyrinth of endless corridors. If we wish to understand why the recent circus in Washington, euphemistically referred to as a resumption of the so-called peace process, will have no more success in resolving the Israel-Palestine conflict than similar efforts have in the past one could do no better than by examining the early documents of the Israel lobby and how it successfully insinuated pro-Israel propaganda into every aspect of American life. And that's what Grant Smith and I will be discussing when I get him on the phone about twenty minutes past the hour and I'll be opening the phones to you at the latter part of the program, the last ten minutes or so of the program. The failure, of course, of the 2010 version of the peace process cannot be totally traced to the Israel lobby or to Israel's intransigence although they are the heavies in the scenario as I mentioned in my last program the Palestinian figurehead Mahmoud Abbas is treated by Israel as well as President Obama as well as by their allies in Europe as if he were still the president of the Palestinian Authority despite the fact that his term of office expired in January 2009 17 months ago and that he has refused to call new elections because as he, Tel Aviv and Washington are well aware should he do so he would surely lose. I also reported that he came to Washington without official backing from the 18 member Palestinian Authority Executive committee, which would not give him the 12 votes needed to authorize him to do anything. Two days before the, uh, excuse me, two days after the farce in, ended in Washington, the Palestinian news agency Man quoted independent Palestinian legislator Mustafa Barghouti as saying that Israeli settlers had illegally annexed 130 square kilometers of land in Karayut, a village south of the northern West Bank city of Nablus. And then Barghouti further added that construction material had been brought in to start building some 3,000 new units throughout the settlement block. According to Barghouti, some 603 settlement units were built during Israel's 10 month partial settlement freeze, quote unquote, which is due to expire in September 26. Prime Minister Netanyahu has assured the settlers and the Israeli public that it will not be extended, and for his part, Abbas has said that he will draw from the talks if the freeze is not extended as well. This is of course exactly what Netanyahu wants him to do, since neither he nor his government have any interest in reaching an agreement with the Palestinians, and Obama has promised there will be no pressure on him The next item would outrage the majority of Americans if only they knew about it. But they won't thanks to Israel's friends in the media. It has to do with the F35, the next generation of American fighter planes that will have a price tag of $150 million each or more. Lockheed Martin has the contract to eventually make 3200 of them, some of them which some of which they will pedal to our peace-loving allies. Israel of course wants to buy some, but not just your everyday shop for F35. They want the ones they buy to include Israeli electronics and weapon systems. The problem for them is that when the plane becomes available in 2015, if it stays on schedule, buying those F-35s will consume all the 2.75 billion that U.S. taxpayers will be giving Israel that year to spend on weaponry. So, what has Lockheed Martin and our gracious Secretary of Defense Robert Gates agreed to do? According to Aviation Week, Lockheed Martin will pay the Israeli aerospace industry four billion dollars and conceivably five billion to build the wings for 800 of the 32 hundred perspective f thirty five this means that not only will israel get two point five excuse me two point seven five billion worth of f thirty fives for nothing it will get also an additional one point two five and perhaps two Two five billion of U.S. taxpayers' dollars to play with, not to mention the well-paying aircraft industry jobs that will be outsourced from the U.S. to Israel. This story has been reported as well by Defense Industry Daily and by Reuters News Service, yet it has been totally ignored by the media. I have written to Lockheed Martin and to the Defense Department to get an explanation as to why U.S. jobs are being outsourced to Israel and will let you know if and when I get an answer. It gets worse. On August 6th, the US Defense Security Cooperation Agency, I don't know if you've ever heard of that one before, the DSCA, which is a sales section of the Defense Department, published a notice, as it's legally required to do, announcing that Israel had ordered a massive quantity of various jet fuels suitable for military use, and in the case of the order for JP eight jet fuel suitable only for military use. The total price of Israel's order? $2 billion. Besides 284 million gallons of JP-8 jet fuel, the order also includes 60 million gallons of unleaded gasoline and 100 million gallons of diesel fuel. Military experts have said that Israel would require connivance and support from the U.S. for a strike against Iran and that it would be necessary for Washington to supply the massive amounts of fuel needed for such a strike. If Israel were to to attack Iran, the 284 million gallons of jet fuel would be more than enough to do the job. However, it does not explain Israel's need for such large amounts of gasoline and diesel fuel, since an Israeli strike against Iran is unlikely to include any type of ground attack on Iran for which these fuels would be required. The only conclusion one can draw, writes Australian aeronautical engineer and historian Damien Latan, who discovered the report of the prospective sale is that if Israel is not planning to invade Iran, which clearly is beyond its capability, but that it is planning to use the gasoline and diesel fuel for some other ground invasion, that could only mean an invasion of Lebanon and possibly Gaza if and when an attack against Iran is launched. This massive order begs the question, writes Latan, is a confrontation with Iran imminent? And if not, then what is all this fuel for? Jet fuel, he notes ominously, if it's not going to be used in peak condition, doesn't have a long shelf life. But the Defense Security Cooperation Agency looks at it in a different way. This proposed sale, says its press release, will contribute to the foreign policy and national security of the United States by helping to improve the security of a friendly country which has been and continues to be an important force for political stability and economic progress in the Middle East." End quote. I have written to the agency's press office to find out who will be coming up with the $2 billion to pay for the fuel. Why do I have a hunch it will be the American taxpayers? And why hasn't our media picked up this story as well? Here's more on the subject of U.S. weaponry. Writing on the Al Jazeera website on Monday, Rick rozoff a former guest on Takes on the World, noted that, quote, the Internet has provided the world with, if nothing else, instantaneous access to news and in-depth information previously available only to government and think tanks." End quote. I should add that the last item proved it. Uh, Rosoff goes on, it has also allowed for the exchange of data and analysis between groups and individuals around the globe, in part by making one tongue, English, the language of the World Wide Web. It remains to be seen, he writes, whether the keystroke is mightier than the sword. He illustrates his case with a report dated August 29th from China's Xinhua News Agency and a news article by Egypt's Middle East News Agency regarding a study conducted by the Strategic Foresight Group in India. The study published in a book entitled, The Cost of Conflict in the Middle East calculates that wars in the area over the last 20 years have cost the nations and people of the region 12 trillion U.S. dollars. It points out that the Middle East requires comprehensive regional development but instead is receiving billions of dollars worth of arms. The area's nations, it says, could be spending that sum on rural and urban infrastructure, dams and reservoirs, desalination and irrigation, forestation and fisheries, industry and agriculture, medicine and public health, housing and information technology, equitable integration of cities and villages, and repairing the ravages of past wars rather than on U.S. warplanes, attack helicopters and interceptor missiles. The report cited an American news story from 2009, which revealed that according to a US-based consultancy firm, several Middle Eastern nations were set to spend over $100 billion in weapons in the upcoming five years. Most of these arms purchases it's called unprecedented packages, would be undertaken by Iraq, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates, and, quote, the core of this arms buying spree will undoubtedly be the $20 billion U.S. package of weapons systems over 10 years for the six states of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar and Bahrain. The Bush administration which negotiated these sales justified them on the basis that they would serve as a bulwark against threats to the region by Iran. The same excuse was made by the U.S. in supplying Egypt with a $13 billion arms package and Israel with $30 billion in weaponry over 10 years, the latter a 25% increase over previous levels. Now, a year later, Defense News reported last Wednesday that Washington will sell $13 billion worth of arms and military equipment to Iraq, a huge order of tanks, ships and hardware that U.S. officials say shows Iraq-U.S. military ties will be tight for years to come." A $3 billion deal for 18 F-16 Fighting Falcon multi-role jet fighters is also in the works, which will make Iraq one of the largest purchasers of U.S. weapons in the world. According to the U.S. Army's Lieutenant General Michael Barbaro, senior American officer in charge of training and advising Iraqi troops, such military agreements help, quote, build their capabilities first and foremost, and second, it builds our strategic relationship for the future, end quote. With 4.7 million Iraqis displaced since 2003, as Rozov points out, 2.2 million as refugees in Jordan, Syria and other nations, and a near collapse of the nation's civilian infrastructure since the U.S. invasion, surely there is something very wrong with Iraq spending $16 billion on American arms. Or will that, too, be added to our deficit? Finally, you'll recall that filmmaker Oliver Stone was recently forced to recant remarks that he had made criticizing Israel and the pro-Israel lobby that came on the heels of the firing by the Hearst newspapers of the Dean of White House Correspondents' Helen Thomas, a former guest on my program, and by CNN of 20-year veteran Octavia Nasser for private comments each had made that offended some Jewish sensibilities and for which both apologized. The latest to get into trouble is European Union Trade Chief Carol De Groot, who apologized Friday for blaming Jews and what he referred to as the Jewish lobby in Washington for blocking Mideast peace, as the embarrassed European Union head office quickly distanced itself from his comments and the European Jewish Congress issued its denunciations. Moshe Cantor, president of the Jewish Congress, said the remarks were part of a dangerous trend of incitement against Jews in Israel and Europe that needs to be stamped out immediately. De-hooked 56 issued a statement saying, quote, I regret that the comments that I made have been interpreted in a sense that I did not intend. I did not mean in any possible way to cause offense or stigmatize the Jewish community. I want to make clear that anti-Semitism has no place in today's world and is fundamentally against our European values, end quote. That knee failed to placate critics, and the in Jewish Congress issued a second declaration rejecting it as insufficient. Quote, we didn't read any apology in the statement and are still waiting to hear one, it said. These remarks clearly fall within the European Union's own definition of anti-Semitism. So there can be no explanation for these comments and no possible justification for European officials to dismiss them as quote-unquote personal. The remarks in a Thursday radio interview came just as President Obama was convening the meeting between Netanyahu and Abbas. The European Jewish Congress is an umbrella group that coordinates activities of 40 national Jewish communities in Europe, encompassing approximately 2.5 million Jews. Its president, Cantor, had demanded a retraction of Degugt's remarks, in which he maintained that Israel frustrates U.S.-led peace efforts and warned not to underestimate the Jewish lobby on Capitol Hill. Said Degugt, that is the best organized lobby that exists there, he said, telling he told the Dutch-speaking VRT radio network. But well, he quickly found out that it is also quite well organized, in his own backyard. It is now 9.18, and time to get my guest, Grant Smith, on the phone. My guest today, Grant Smith, is one of this country's foremost investigative journalists. And as I said on each of the previous three appearances on this program, one of its best kept secrets. That may be explained by the focus of his work, uncovering the hidden history of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or AIPAC, Israel's officially registered Washington Lobby, the most powerful in the nation's capital. It has also been too hot a story for some of the best of our alternative media, but thanks to sites like antiwar.com, the word and the Internet in general, the word is getting out. As Director of Research at the Washington-based Institute for Research, Middle East Policy, or IRMEP, Grant has produced six books, Deadly Dogma, How Neoconservatives Broke the Law to Deceive America in 2006, which we spoke with him about that at the time, as well as foreign agents, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee from the 1963 Fulbright hearings to the current scandal in 2007. Declassified Deceptions, A Secret History of Isaiah Kennan and the rise of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, also in 2007. America's Defense Line, the Justice Department's battle to register the Israel lobby as agents of a foreign government, which we spoke about in 2008, and Spy Trade, how Israel's lobby undermines America's economy, which we discussed last December. Much of the information Grant has gathered has been taken from the files of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings the US Justice Department and other agencies that have been kept from public scrutiny for years and have systematically been declassified and sent to the National Archives in Washington. This past July I was happy to participate with Grant, Professor John Mearsheimer and a recent guest, Sasha Polakov saransky on a panel on Israel's nuclear arsenal, espionage opacity and future held in Washington DC and a free Grant Grant will be offering free copies of DVD of that event to any of you who wish to contact him or me after the program, and I'll give you the contact information at the end of the program. So welcome once again, Grant Smith, to Takes on the World.
1: Well, thanks, Jeffrey, and uh, I really appreciate being on uh, your show. Uh, It's a great program, and I also appreciate the fact that uh, you traveled the country uh, to do events like that Washington, D.C. event on uh, nuclear arms, so uh, thank you.
0: Well, it was certainly an important one, and, and, uh, and uh, thank you, and you're very welcome. Uh, there have been many critically important stories that have been withheld from the American public over the years, and one of those most certainly has to be the birth of the pro-Israel lobby, much of which came to light in 1963 in hearings of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee held by the late, revered Senator J.W. Fulbright. Right. You've been sorting through declassified files now available in the National Archives, and they tell an amazing story of both unflagging dedication as well as deception on the part of zealous for Israel within the organized Jewish community uh, in order to guarantee U.S. continued support for Israel. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's a
1: fair assessment, but clearly one of the biggest findings in going through the classified files, and you were right to point out that up until July 23rd, we only had access to the public senate record and some ancillary files at the National Archives. Most of the important findings, and indeed uh, information that uh, was censored due to the protest of a lot of the people subpoenaed, Uh, in the Jewish agency and Apex predecessor organizations, uh, never made it into the Senate record. Um, But I would point out that the massive manipulation of the American media, which took place over approximately seven years, and they involved millions of dollars of investment, and was also blatantly illegal, that's probably one of the key findings uh, of these documents that emerged on July 23rd.
0: Well, perhaps you could elaborate on that.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, just uh, to to make the point, the Senate reserves the right, Congress reserves the right, to classify information and particularly Senate investigations for 25 to 50 years, and they even reserve the right to indefinitely classify information. And what they put into these uh, many thousands. Uh, of pages uh, into folders for, uh, for for being sealed up for almost half a century were uh, documents which revealed that the Jewish agency, which is a Jerusalem-based quasi-governmental entity with access to tax revenues in Israel, it also has pre-legislative powers given it in 1953, was diverting uh, Israeli and tax-deductible U.S. charitable donations into a massive covert lobbying and media campaign that uh, many people uh, began to become aware of, including the American Council for Judaism, Lessing Rosenwald was sending complaints urging the Senate and the DOJ to investigate, and other groups that were feeling the pressure of this massive campaign and wanted to understand better who was financing it well they found out that the equivalent of about thirty six million dollars in today's dollars were being funneled into the uh... organization we now know as the american israel public affairs committee which had a sixty two component strategy for shutting down competing ideas displacing academics uh, moving favorable people into academia, chartering, paying for, and even writing many articles that appeared in leading magazines uh, from the Atlantic to the Saturday Evening Post to Life magazine, and engaging in a, a massive uh, media manipulation campaign that would forever teach uh, independent newspapers and holdouts uh, not to cross the lobby, or otherwise they would face consequences. And they did indeed have the capacity for, for implementing those consequences. So the most uh, important thing uh, in the documents, uh, the American Zionist Council file, which you can search for on the Internet, are certainly these public relations activities, which were targeting American free speech rights by shutting down competing voices And indeed, what we see in some of the files of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee is tight coordination with leading uh, campaign financiers, such as Abraham Feinberg, who, at the same time he was donating to AIPAC, was also uh, being named uh, by Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion to head up secret funding for Israel's nuclear weapons program at Dimona. And so you see this two-pronged attack. Uh, you see Feinberg attacking the Kennedy administration by blatantly going around it and proliferating in the Middle East while Kennedy was trying to engage in non-proliferation strategies and questioning the Damona nuclear weapons site and considering international inspections. And you have Isaiah Kennan. Placing articles and recirculating uh, articles by friendly people in the New York Times and other publications, saying, "You know, oh no, no, this is this is uh, this could never be. Dimona could never be a nuclear weapons facility. It's uh, far too small. Everybody knows that only the U.S. and Russia could ever be members of the atomic club." So, by getting these files, you can see some of these tremendously important. Propaganda campaigns coordinated with Israel, coordinated with activists in the United States, blatantly illegal uh, for the fact that they were operating as unregistered foreign agents, and uh, tremendously effective because there was a very clear strategy, the remnants of which we can still see today because the, the, uh, the investigation did fail in its core objectives of exposing and regulating all of this. Um, so so that's probably the most important single finding that comes out of the unsealed Senate records.
0: Well, I should mention that Senator Fulbright was the first victim of the Israel lobby of the American Zionist Council at that time for going after, having a temerity to go after uh, the Israel lobby. They targeted him, and he was successfully defeated. Uh, I should also mention Abe Feinberg, was known and even identified by J.F. Kennedy Jack Kennedy, as the man who had put uh, anywhere from $400,000 to $2 million in the pocket of Harry Truman when Truman's campaign was out of money uh, in order to uh, let Truman go on his whistle-stop train campaign around the United States. And also Feinberg raised money for Kennedy – And as Seymour Hersh wrote in his book, Samson Option, after the election, Feinberg came to see Kennedy and told him that he wanted Kennedy to let him and the the Zionist lobby determine U.S.-Middle East policy. Uh, Feinberg is a a, – he also – he has been a major player in this, but he's kept out of the public limelight. I guess very few listeners probably have ever heard of him.
1: No, and, and they should because he's an extremely important man. Uh, if you look at his obituary in the New York Times, it sort of hints at the fact that he not only uh, helped violate the Arms Export Control Act by by participating in the Haganah uh, arms smuggling networks that were set up uh, for independence in 1948, but it kind of alludes to the fact that he helped in the nuclear arms funding uh, campaign. And and it's you know it's it's somewhat hair raising to see. Uh, the timing of his funding to APAC against what APAC was doing to to plant all of these fake stories about Demona, but the other thing to, to be aware of is you have other people funding APAC uh, at the same time that it was receiving overseas funding, such as uh, Mayor Lansky's, the uh, famous mob accountant, uh, his associate Aaron Weisberg was contributing from. The Sands Casino, where he was a straw owner of that. Uh, you have other gangsters like John, Jake the Barber Factor, who was a big, uh, stock fraudster and, and did all sorts of interesting things with Al Capone, including faking his own kidnapping. He was throwing money into APAC. I mean, APAC was, uh, sourcing funds not only from, from, uh, diverted or laundered charitable contributions, but also from some pretty sordid, uh, people because it couldn't get legitimate donors. Legitimate donors, uh, told Kenan to his face that they assumed that everything he was doing was being funded by the Israeli government because he was functioning, uh, as a foreign government lobbyist. And there was, there was really no mystery to that, uh, as far as the State Department was concerned either because they saw him leave the employee of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1951 and goes straight into these shell organizations, you know, lobbying for the same people and receiving funding from essentially the same overseas elements.
0: It's interesting, uh, the files discuss uh, the concern that the American Zionist Council and later AIPAC had for an organization called the American Council for Judaism, right. which most people don't know of today. But uh, at the time this was happening, Israel was not on the, the agenda of most Ameri- American Jews. That didn't happen until '67. So all this was going on. There was a battle going. The American Council for Judaism uh, said that Israel was, was, that were not Zionists. They were anti zionist but these were major... Uh, individuals in the American Jewish community. They were not fringe at all, and they were battling in the public uh, with the American Zionist Council uh, for the ears of the American people, but they did not have the money or the zealots, uh, as did uh, the American Zionist Council. There was one uh, message that was sent in 1962 in a document that you have in your files on the the magazine committee i want to read for a moment is this is a very important committee chaired by a man who holds a key position on the editorial board in the magazine business he knows everyone in the trade has important contacts and exploits them on behalf of israel he has just returned from his first visit to israel where he had the opportunity to discuss the work of his committee with the men in israel who are concerned with good public relations for Israel in this country? The committee itself is composed of fifteen writers and editors who are eminent in their respective fields, and has built a bank of ideas for freelance writers who go to Israel in search of articles to provide the Israelis with a better idea of the kind of material which is acceptable to the American reading public and magazine editors. So already, they had infiltrated into the the, the media, the magazine business, the newspaper business. Um, Israeli really propagandist,
1: they right? But the, the important thing that you just hit on there, and you made two important points. Um, I'll go with the second one first. They, I I assume because that was filed with um, alongside a proposal of Ruder and Finn, which is a lobbying organization that became in fact a, a registered lobbyist for the Israeli government for economic development. I assume they may have been referring to the founder, Mr. Finn himself. Uh, and, and that kind of shows how the business model was emerging, that you could be a public voice, you could contribute in other ways, and you'd still be paid by the Israeli government for your activities. And I think, you know, you can only assume, now that we're in ever more sophisticated global swaps environments, how this might be working today. But it's extremely important to look at, you know, how you have... You know, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was aware of how this is working because they would file those... Two things in the same file uh, to to show how they were linked. The other thing is Lessing Rosenwald. If you can imagine, here was you know a former uh, member of Sears Roebuck and Company, an owner, an important entrepreneur in his own right, spent a lot of money on extremely important philanthropic endeavors such as the National Portrait Gallery here in Washington D.C. And he was able to get access to presidents. He was able to talk to senators. In fact. Uh, one time when he and Ram, Rabbi Elmer Berger were in uh, the, uh, the chambers, uh, you had a congressman saying that somebody should basically take them both out and shoot them. They were causing so much problems because they were opposed to the United Jewish Appeal, a major charity, uh, taking what was tax-deductible charitable relief raised for humanitarian aid overseas they were opposed to that being recycled into the US political system because obviously uh if you can recycle such funds into US politics and, and gradually displace aid with, with arms and taxpayer funded uh US uh aid to to Israel, you have quite a quite an interesting business going for you there. And that's what that's what Rosenwald and Berger were opposed to. And they ultimately visited the U.S. Department of Justice in the late 60s, early 70s, and presented the Jewish Agency, which was the entity diverting all of this funding back into the U.S., as a foreign agent and managed to get it shut down temporarily. Uh, that story circles back to us today because the Jewish Agency has just recently announced that it would like to reopen its offices in New York. And uh, this is an organization that funded uh, Dennis Ross, who is the chair of a think tank that they paid for called the Jewish People's Policy Planning Institute, uh, he left the employee of the Jewish agency essentially to become Obama's national security advisor. So we're essentially in this sort of uh, mebius strip of history where things continually repeat and we never question the financial flows or, or the lobbying impact of, of the past.
0: Well, yeah, I had mentioned earlier on the program before I called you uh, a plan for Israel to not only get uh, 20 F-35s for nothing, uh, but for uh, American jobs to be outsourced to Israel for building the wings of one quarter of the F-35s. And this is a story that was in Aviation Week, but the mainstream media has not picked, up, picked it up nor have any of the politicians who claim we need to, have to keep jobs here in the United States. Uh, It seems to be, in order to understand why there's been a silence on situations like that today, uh, you have to go back to the history, the one that you've uncovered.
1: Right, and it was interesting. I mean, when we first received the files, uh, we actually offered a first look to National Public Radio and uh, issued a press release saying, hey, this is an an extremely interesting historical look at foreign media manipulation in the united states well they took a pass and the frightening thing about your report on the jp8 jet fuel and i think you mentioned it is the shelf life of that is highly combustible you know fuel is is very limited and so this is either an elaborate ruse because so many people in the grass or net roots are talking about it Uh, Or it's a frightening prospect that already, as you've mentioned, some sort of major Israeli Middle East military uh, venture has already been approved at the top levels of both governments, and the American people are, as usual, being kept in the dark about it.
0: And this was announced in a press release by the Defense Cooperation Security Agency, right. uh, which which should have alerted editors to look at it at least. The, the, the amazing information is is online. This this I subscribe to something called Defense Information Daily. It, it gives all the details of all the arms sales going on. Uh, you would think that uh, newspaper editors, magazine editors, uh, would be also subscribing to this and reporting on stories such as this which are important but we now have now an understanding of why they don't get reported
1: right I think we do but the one thing to note is that when when they make those announcements those are proposed sales um, it's not it's not 100% certain that they in fact have already you know made the shipments or will make the shipments but it's frightening nevertheless. and the fact that again no mainstream media touches it, but you only have bloggers and people who who are alert and concerned about these issues you know making a case in, in relatively low volume low bandwidth environments is is also just unacceptable
0: well it's also interesting that the Project for a New American Century, PNAC, which became so well-known uh, during the beginning of the Iraq War because it had pushed for it, which is a, a baby of the, the neocons, uh, was not reported in the United States but exposed in the Scottish Herald. <laughs> um, so there's something really missing on the part of the U.S. media when it comes to investigating uh, critical aspects that, in which touch on Israel or the organized Jewish community, aka the Israel Israel lobby.
1: Well, when I when I looked at these reports and all, and these again, these sixty two tactics, it just about made me give up on, on on major establishment media because this was fifty years ago that these sophisticated tactics were launched, and as I said, the attempt to regulate was a failure, and so I, I think we're you know we are where we are at this point. And, and really need to look at alternative sources of information because these these powerful tactics uh, have had an impact, and they're visible to people who understand history, uh, but unfortunately many don't.
0: Uh, one of the things that that came out, which I was not aware of until you uh, started doing your investigation, was uh, JFK's role or position in all of this. He has been presented generally as being very supportive of Israel, and he was a supporter of Israel, but he also, his Justice Department under Bobby, as you've pointed out in previous books, made a serious effort to get the American Zionist Council, which was APAC at the time, um, the predecessor of APAC, to register as a foreign agent, and they blocked and blocked and blocked until Kennedy was assassinated. that he also was adamantly, both publicly and privately, opposed to Israel's building of nuclear weapons. He was the last president to really be so adamantly opposed to it. He also uh, was in support of the Palestinian right of return, and two days before he was assassinated, uh, the U.N. representative of the U.S. reaffirmed Resolution 194, reaffirming the Palestinian right of return. These facts have been written out of history, and it's very important that people know um, our history you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> otherwise we tend to repeat it as we have my well, guest yeah. by the way is Grant Is Grant Smith I'm going to open the phones here in a few minutes the number here I'll give it to you now is 707-895-2448 or 1-800-499-7117 895-2448 that's in the 707 area or 1-800-499-7117 um, one of the, the, also the targets of, uh, two of the important targets by the Zionist lobby with the American, was the churches and also the black community. Maybe you could comment on, on the infiltration and in the of work in that community.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, there was a, what we saw is the, the proto-American um, Israel Public Affairs Committee uh, travel agency to Israel. They were very uh, concerned to identify leading voices uh, in Christian communities to bring them to Israel, to, to get them on Israel's side, to give them talking points and send them back to, to the community. And they began forming kind of the the Proto-American Israel uh, Education Foundation, which is this, this uh, annex of AIPAC that brings Congress people, brings policymakers, influencers over to Israel to give them Kind of a one-sided view of the conflict and talking points, and they also, at the same time, would be working with the local press of each one of these leaders to send back accounts of their visits and raise their profile. So that was certainly uh, one part. The other uh, of, of ties to the African American community is also uh, an entire project in the uh, in the uh, public relations department to you know look for. Similar lines of communication, kind of uh, position the the struggle for Israel as being similar to the civil rights movement. So, you saw an identification with as many uh, key groups in the United States as possible, including economic and industrial groups, in order to to implement this program.
0: Uh, well, thank you. Uh, uh, the lights are board is lit up here, so let's go to the first caller. Hello, you're on the air.
2: Hello. Is my radio low enough? Uh,
0: well, you should turn off completely so you could hear us. Yes.
2: Yes. Is it okay?
0: I, that's fine. Go ahead.
2: All right. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask Mr. Smith, I mean, I'm petrified about what's happening with Israel, uh, their plans to attack Iran. Um, the prospect of attacking Iran and other suspected enemies of Israel, it, it's threatening the future, actually the the very existence of humanity if we do anything like that with all the nuclear weapons and everything. But, you know, um, we're sitting here, you know, talking very intelligently about this. Well, I mean, it, it is. It's frightening if you know what's happening, and nothing in the media is telling us anything about this. It's being completely, uh, you know, I. Uh, uh, they create their own separate reality and right. don't tell the people what's going on. But the one thing that I wanted to ask Mr. Smith is, um, has he ever heard of Norman Finkelstein? And what does he think of him? Because he hasn't been mentioned. And I've read uh, Mercharmer and Walt, but I also did read The Holocaust Industry by Norman Finkelstein, who is supposed to be some weird radical, but I don't think so.
1: <laughs> and so I wanted to know what he thought
2: of Norman. Sir,
1: sure. sure, let me take let sure, me I'm take that out. go off
2: the air and take
1: a uh, thank on you caller. Thank All you. Right. Yeah, I think um, I think you're absolutely right that the attack, you know, proposed attack on Iran is is a tremendous tremendous negative. Uh, there's no indication that they have anything but a civilian nuclear program. But I, I think you're right. You need to look for things to do. I think. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do online. You can be part of different discussion groups. You can send uh, concerns to law enforcement officials. You can send concerns to the Department of Justice. You can say, why isn't this organization registering as a foreign agent, talking about APAC. Um, but I think what you need to do is to get active in your local community and get active online and begin to discredit Uh, In as many opportunities as as you have for getting on call-in shows, discredit the talking points that are just blatant lies. And, you know, some of the media tactics that we've seen, which are geared to only get one side of the issues on any sort of public policy debate, you need to be active in, in questioning those, in calling in and saying, look, you know, we're sick of the propaganda. You need to get credible people on board. Uh, as far as Mr. Finkelstein, I don't know whether, Jeff, you sounded like you wanted to say something about...
0: Well, I was going to say he did a great job exposing the Holocaust industry, but the Holocaust is used as, as a sledgehammer to justify what Israel's been doing to the Palestinians, and it, it's an abuse of the memory of those who died.
1: Right, and he's, he's a victim of point number 37 of this 62-point <laughs> plan, which is which is called Try to Have... Uh, professors who were who were singing a different tune fired and uh, he was in fact
0: and they, and they got him fired. our board is lit up thanks so much for the call and, and thank you great here's a, uh, hello you're on the air next caller
2: hi i'd like to say raise I'd your know, voice please I, okay hi i'd like to say i'm not going to apologize for anything i have to say about the israeli government and that everybody needs to stand up and say what they need to say and not apologize these people have their hands so far into our government that we need to take our government back. I'm sorry, they're not going to attack anybody in the Middle East. They're not going to come back and attack us because all our U.S. troops are over there in other countries. We're so spread thin that it would be so easy for them to take over because they've already taken over the White House. Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs>
1: Thanks. I think, I think her voice is certainly a voice you hear more and more today, which is unapologetic, cold in terms of looking at the, you know, the the structural, um, what's actually happening, and uh, willing to speak out and challenge. And uh, there are thousands, if not millions, more Americans like you, and uh, they are starting to appear more and more. Uh,
0: Thank you, Colin. We have another caller. Hello, you're on the air.
3: Uh, Yes, um, very good show. Uh, You mentioned National Public Radio a little bit ago, and I wanted to point out very quickly that it's now just... NPR, like BP is no longer British Petroleum, but so I guess now NPR could stand for National Puppet Radio, since they have taken away uh, the words that used to go with it. Uh, back in 1975, our country was marching with um, Iranian soldiers for training to fly aircraft or repair those aircraft in the Air Force and to the other military services. I want to repeat that. We were marching and training with Iranian soldiers. Uh, Osama bin Laden was backed by our government as a freedom fighter when they were fighting Russia, uh, the former Soviet Union. What was the Israeli lobby stance at that time concerning those two entities versus how they're going now, and why the change? Thank well, you for the and Also, is there any problem. nuclear amount yeah. that we've been given uh, to Israel in this
1: whole overall giveaway? Thanks. Yeah, the Israelis were probably one of the biggest allies of the Shah of Iran. They had massive contracts for everything from missile development to aircraft and weapons purchasers. And they were the outsourcing entity for the SAVAK, the uh, uh, Iranian secret police. So when the Shah, uh, excuse me, when the Shah fell in 79, they were obviously thrown out and... Uh, and uh been dying to, to restore productive relations uh, with some major energy producer. And a lot of analysts, and myself included, would say that a lot of the drive to keep a wedge between the U.S. and Iran is that they are remarkably compatible trading partners. And so the Israelis uh, are, are very adamant that that relationship not redevelop, uh, particularly – with uh, hostile uh, Iranian statements continually coming
0: out. Jeff? Also, the, um, at the even at the time the U.S. was supporting the Mujahideen, in Israel they were already talking about the fundamentalist threat. Uh, that originated in Israel, not in the United States, the Islamic fundamentalist threat. Uh, one more call. Hello, you're on the air.
4: Yeah, hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, I the. them... One of the best things about this show has been brave people to call in to, uh, to uh, assert the independence of their country. To uh, uh, I'd like to mention two things quickly. One is is that uh, has anybody brought up the fact that Israel sank an American ship, the Liberty, uh, during their uh, War of Independence? or uh, Not their War of Independence, rather, but their Six-Day War?
0: Well, they tried and, to sink it, and, and they, they thought they had. They killed 34 U.S. sailors, moved at 171, napalm torpedoed them for 70 minutes, and the survivors were told they could not talk about it under penalty of court-martial from the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, who was the opposite right. of Kennedy. It was a, a major crime that, that most Americans are not aware of.
4: Right, and, and one last thing. Thank you for, uh, for, I knew you'd know all about <laughs> it. And that, that informs me on the matter a little bit. And uh, the other thing that I'd I'd like to point out is that um, every movement needs a villain. And uh, having a good villain is a good thing in a way. The fact that the Israelis are so organized and so malignant in terms of their militarism, uh, in fact, gives us a focus on which we can uh, attack militarism in general. And um, only if we are able to demilitarize the United States, we're going to be able to neutralize the threat in general. This is a, uh, a planetary threat based on a small elite that controls uh, unbelievable technical um, uh, military might, and they must be diffused they must be uh, uh subjected to the will of the people otherwise they absolutely will destroy the planet
0: amen all
4: right grant. thanks for letting thanks for letting me rave oh, yeah, you're yeah.
0: welcome you have any yeah. comment grant
4: yeah i think diffuse is a great
1: great way to describe it because you can diffuse such things through access to relevant information and you can diffuse it by challenging it but uh, again absence warranted relevant information it's really hard to take action so yeah
0: you know, one one thing i should point out one of the ways that the apac um keeps uh the the american jewish community that part that supports israel online is through fear now they're currently involved in a fundraising campaign and this is the thing that they sent out online Uh, This is addressed to me. Dear Jeff, I'm on their mailing list. Imagine yourself standing in Jerusalem right now. To the south is a rearmed Hamas emboldened by the flotilla incident and its aftermath. To the north, Hezbollah raising tensions on the border and now armed with 45,000 rockets, some of which can hit any spot in Israel. To the east, a radical Iran, which CIA Director Director Leon Panetta now says is enough low-enriched uranium for two nuclear bombs. And to the west in New York, a relentlessly biased United Nations is preparing new attacks on Israel's legitimacy as part of a global movement aimed at making Israel one of the most isolated nations in the world. So... This is total exaggeration, total paranoia, but this is what is going to their membership online, and and this is what they're using to get their funds, which right. they badly need to keep on propaganda going. We have time for one more question. Uh, say hello, you're on the air.
4: Yes, considering that the economy of the U.S. is really not manufacturing the things that we historically did, but we are becoming, you know, the world's number one arms exporter, It's hard to visualize shutting down such a wonderful source of uh, exporting weapons. So I just wonder how you think that plays
1: into this. Yeah, I'd like to make a comment on that because the first free trade agreement ever signed by the United States was the one pushed by AIPAC, which has said in various forums that they considered that to be the model for all subsequent trade policy and i would agree with anyone who says that exporting the united states manufacturing base its diversified manufacturing base was a huge mistake that certainly south korea and china and russia would never be foolish enough to make and and to the extent that people look at the origins of our first free trade agreement as detailed in my book spy trade might ask they might begin asking questions about why we have such agreements
0: well a good good answer Uh, I should say, as I mentioned earlier in the program, that a DVD, a free DVD available of the panel that was held in Washington on Israel's nuclear arsenal with myself, with Grant Smith, with Sasha Polakoff, Staransky, and Professor John Mearsheimer would be available. You could contact either Grant at info, info, I-N-F-O, at IRMEP, I-R-M-E-P, dot O-R-G, or you could contact me jblankfort at earthlink.net with your uh, mailing address, and Grant will be happy to send you a copy of this DVD. It's a very enlightening DVD that was held at the International Spy Museum in Washington on July 6th. Also, uh, if you Google Israeli Lobby Archives, you can then see all the documents for yourself and download them and read them that Grant has been talking about, and many many more so this is a a, a treasure trove that he has uh, gleaned from the, from these boxes of archives in the national archives that get that get turned over to the National Archives by the u s government, and he has brought out some pearls. Uh, that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Grant, I want to thank you so much, Grant Smith, for being our guest today on Takes on the World. And I look forward to our next visit and, uh, on the air and in Washington.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff.
0: Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye.